0: After the Baltimore Colts and before the Baltimore Ravens, so many leagues tried to make a go of it in Baltimore. The USFL tried it with the Baltimore Stars, and even though the Stars won a championship, they actually never played in Charm City. Baltimore had hoped an NFL team would move there or an expansion team would be awarded. Baltimoreans had given up hope, but the CFL. The Canadian Football League thought the mid-1990s would be a perfect time to bring its brand of football to the lower 48 and embarked on an aggressive expansion plan that included Baltimore. At first, fans were a little skeptical, but they got behind their new team and the CFL got way more than it bargained for. The team, eventually known as the Baltimore Stallions, was a powerhouse and won the CFL's historic Grey Cup, and then, just like that, poof, they were gone. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to go back in time with Ron Snyder, author of the new book, The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Championship Franchise, and talk about this forgotten championship team. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, right about now, Not only is baseball supposed to be in full swing, but as I release this new episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, today is June 9th, 2020, and in just two days, June 11th, the Canadian Football League was supposed to start its 2020 regular season with the BC Lions visiting the Edmonton Eskimos, but... Just like the rest of the professional sports world, at least team sports in North America, the CFL has been sidelined by the coronavirus. There is still some hope that the league will move forward later this season. Hatched in 1958, the CFL has had an illustrious history. Currently, there are nine teams. In the West Division, there's BC and Edmonton. The Calgary Stampeders, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and the Saskatchewan Roughriders. The East Division is made up of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, Montreal Alouettes, Toronto Argonauts, and the Ottawa Red Blacks. Of course, like any league, teams have come and gone, but at one point, the CFL looked to expand its reach and it dipped its toes into the U.S. market. It was 1993, and the CFL expanded into the U.S. with the Sacramento Gold Miners. In 1994, the CFL added the Las Vegas Posse, the Baltimore CFLers, and the Shreveport Pirates. In 1995, it added the Birmingham Barracudas, the Memphis Mad Dogs, and the San Antonio Texans, and then, just like that, the league was gone. Ron Snyder, a fan of the Baltimore entry to the league, just finished writing a book, The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Championship Franchise. Published by the great folks at McFarland, Snyder discusses the brief history of the team, Baltimore's fascination with football and how they were ultimately abandoned during an incredible run towards the Gray Cup after Art Modell announced he was moving what was the original Cleveland Browns to Baltimore. Now before we get into today's podcast, just a few reminders. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram, look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, and please visit sportsfh.com. Here, you can learn more about my guests, find more links to the Forgotten Stars and teams I talk about, and you can leave comments or make suggestions for future shows. I'd love to hear from you, and as always, please, Leave a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. So the Baltimore Stallions, it was definitely an interesting time for football in Charm City. Football fans were upset with the NFL. They were spurned over and over again. And when the CFL came to town and Baltimoreans saw that the product was real, They got behind the team and offered more support than any other team based in the U.S. or Canada was receiving. And here to tell us more about it is Ron Snyder, author of the book, The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief Brilliant History of the CFL Championship Franchise. Hey, Ron, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Sure. Hey, let's start with the big picture here. And later, we're going to dive into Baltimore. But first, the big picture. What was behind the CFL's expansion into the United States? Well, I think it was it was born out of necessity.
1: Um, the... Mid 19, early to mid 1990s, the CFL was in trouble, mm-hmm. um, and you know, a lot of the franchises were in financial um, peril. To, to not mention any words, um, you had you know franchises leaving like the Argonauts, who who had made a name for themselves in the early 90s with signing Rocket Ishmael, um, but their owner ended up you know being in financial trouble and ended up going to jail, and they had other franchises that were in financial uh dire conditions and they thought well let's go into the u.s let's look at expand and then you know with, with expansion comes expansion fees mm-hmm. so you know a lot of those fees that those owners brought in uh, really helped keep the league afloat during that time so it was you know it wasn't one of these things where you know they were looking to be an alternative to the nfl it was you know they, they have carved out a pretty good niche for themselves for you know, decades and decades, but it was an idea of what, what we need to do this to try to survive.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, expanding into cities like uh, Saskatoon, um, not, not exactly the, the prime thing to do because of the population there, but going into the U.S. to a place like Baltimore, Sacramento, Las Vegas, San Antonio, Memphis, Shreveport. Birmingham. These are the cities that the CFL expanded to. You know, whenever I look at these cities, with the exception of Baltimore, I can't help but think about the several other leagues that have tried to make it there, but they always have failed. The USFL, the World Football League, the original XFL, the AAF. What is it about these cities that attract these leagues yet the NFL never goes there except for Baltimore and, you know, now Las Vegas?
1: Well, I think you you look at those cities and all of those cities have, you know, have tried to attract an NFL team and have failed for the most part. A lot of those teams were in the running. Also, those are a lot of football hotbeds, right? People love football in all those cities, but, what we've seen is is that what it rules the day there is not professional football; it's high school football, mm-hmm. it's college football. Um, you know, look, you you know, Birmingham would be great until it's time for you know the Tide to, to mm-hmm. open camp. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tennessee, you know, look, they've done well, but you know, it took uh, with uh, with the Titans, but you know, that was the Tennessee. Tennessee football, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, LSU football. I mean, uh, you know, these are, are areas that, that are more more successful when it comes to high school and, and college football. And, and then what happens is, is that you, know, you can't obviously play during the NFL season. So what happens is you play in, a, you know, in the spring or the summer. And it's really, really hot <laughs> during that time. Mm-hmm. It's not conducive to football. So you, know, you take that combination and then people have tried and tried again. And, you know, again, we saw it with this and I, you know, I think the current version of the XFL is, 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 that the closed up shop is probably a bad example. Cause I don't know if we knew it was going to, what was going to happen. I mean, they seem to have gained a little bit of traction this time around, but of course, you know, circumstances beyond their control ended their season mm-hmm. And really, I don't think they had the uh, financial wherewithal at that point um, that early on in its existence to, you know, to, to, to weather the storm.
0: Sure. back Back to the CFL. You know, you said it. In the 1990s, they they needed money, but prior to the 1990s, the league was somewhat stable. Why did it suddenly fall on such hard financial times that they needed to expand and they needed that expansion money to survive?
1: Well, a lot of it was poor ownership groups. Um, you know, they they um, of course early 90s also early. Nineties, there were some up and down economic times, but a lot of it was just poor ownership groups. Um, you know, they didn't have a great TV deal. So, and you know, again, just that that competition for the sports dollar. You know, CFL has had a niche, but you think about what ruled the day in that around that time. You know, you had the the Blue Jays. You, you know, hockey. Mm -hmm. you know and it just i think it was a plethora of reasons and and, you know the the cfl has had this you know up and down cycle for for decades you know they they go through through periods like this and we're seeing it right now obviously again for other reasons and just finances i think they had kind of carved out a niche there for several years and had had a nice run but i think again you know that they kind of ebb and flow through the years
0: Mm -hmm. now you know we're talking about the Baltimore entry into the CFL. But before we get there, one other question. What led to the ultimate demise of the CFL in the United States? Why didn't it survive?
1: Well, I think there's a combination. One we talked a little bit about before. The markets that were, were in there were were, CF, were um, college football and high school football uh, hotbeds. Uh, a lot of those teams couldn't compete. Uh, They competed well in the summer, but you saw, you know, as it got closer into the football season, high school and college, they just couldn't compete. You saw attendance drop. Um, Also, again, I think they didn't bet most of those owners very well. Um, A lot of the owners with the exception of maybe Memphis and and San Antonio, you know, were not the best of, of owners. Mm -hmm. Um, Third, I think there was a, a, it was a hard time to sell this football. It's a different style of football, you know, uh, more players, longer field, you know, some different rules to the game. Mm It was, it was hard for people to understand that as well. And then also, you know, look, um, Baltimore was, was, and we'll get more into it, but Baltimore, when it re-entered the NFL, there was no way that Baltimore was going to be able to support, um, an NFL and CFL franchise in the city. And if it wasn't going to work in Baltimore, it wasn't going to work anywhere.
0: Hmm. Well, what attracted the CFL to Baltimore? What made it a good city for the Canadian Football League? Well, I think,
1: um, what it was, was that Baltimore was hungry for football. It was a, it was a confluence of things that kind of, you know, it was a perfect storm. Right. Um, you know, of course, for years and years and years, and we just talked to today. You uh, know, I know this is going to air later, but today's the the death of of Don Shula, who's known obviously for his time with the Dolphins, but was also a great Baltimore Colts coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Colts were, you know, were kings in Baltimore for years and years and years, from Johnny Unitas to Burt Jones to Art Donovan and Lenny Moore, and then of course, you know, when Robert Ursay took the team over, ran the team into the ground ran escaped to Indianapolis in the middle of the night 1984 mm-hmm. uh, and left this huge void and i think baltimore always thought that they were going to get another team right um you know, we had the usfl team here for a year the baltimore stars and mm-hmm. their final year but really they were the they they trained in philadelphia they played their games in college park which you know if they are listeners that's you know a little north of dc mm-hmm. and they called themselves baltimore so they were in baltimore name only and then the NFL teased for the better part of a decade of coming back. First, it was teams like the Cardinals teasing a move from St. Louis before going to Phoenix. You had uh, Tampa Bay teasing a possible move. You had the Rams teasing a possible move. And then they had the expansion in the early 90s you know, where first it went to Charlotte and they said, OK, we're we're OK, we get that. That's a new market you know, the Hornets had just come into town. There's, you could tell that that was a kind of a growing area, but there's no way we're not going to get the second one. Mm -hmm. And then that one went to Jacksonville and that kind of. Ticked people off. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think for many fans, they were done with the NFL. Um, yeah. And, but they still love football. And then this businessman, Jim Spiros comes to town and he says, you know what? You guys don't need the NFL. I'm going to bring to the CFL team and we're going to call them the Baltimore CFL (laughs) Colts. And, you know, we can talk. I'm sure you're going to ask me some questions about that, but that just galvanized the city. It was, you know, Baltimore was a blue collar town. This was a blue collar team. This was us against the world. You know, forget you NFL. We're going to, we're going to make this CFL thing work here in Baltimore.
0: Mm -hmm. What made Spiros think that he, he could operate a team, a CFL team in Baltimore. Talk about Jim and why well, he wanted a Jim, team there.
1: Jim was a, was a businessman who, um, who just understood Baltimore. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he, he's from the, the Virginia, you know, the, the DC area. Um, you know, he played football at Clemson. He, uh, was, uh, uh was on the staff with the Redskins and won a Super Bowl ring. Um, and, um, you know, so then he saw what was going on here in Baltimore with the uh, um, loss of the expansion team. He saw an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think they, you know, once he saw that they weren't getting an expansion team, he saw the opportunity. And, again, I don't think it could have worked at any other time, but it worked there.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Fielding a team is only part of the equation. Finding a place to play is a biggie. And in Baltimore, the natural place to play was Memorial Stadium. You know, the Colts would play there. The Orioles moved out three years earlier to Camden Yards. But their minor league team called Memorial Stadium home for a year. But to well, say Memorial Stadium was ready to host a football team would be somewhat of an understatement, don't you think? What kind of condition was the stadium in, and what did Spiros have to do to get the stadium ready?
1: Well, first off, I was impressed that you knew that the, the Bowie Bay Sox played, uh, <laughs> played there for a year in 1992, their first year before their stadium was built. But, um, you know, I think... I think it was one of the things that Spears underestimated, and I think we all did. We didn't realize, I mean, again, the Orioles had only moved out a couple of years prior. The Bowie Bay Sox had played there two years prior. But when he got there, you know, it was obvious that, you know, Memorial Stadium was in a, uh, was in a state of disrepair. Um, pipes were leaking, seats were broken, uh, electricity needed fixed. I mean, it needed, you know, a huge, huge fix-up just, just to get it ready to play. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, configuring it for a CFL field versus an NFL field. So, I mean, look, he brought in Tom Maddy, the former Colt great, as a, a part of the ownership team. And Tom opened some doors. You know, Tom Tom's name got him in the door with a lot of business people. And, you know, they were able to beg, barter, and, and steal, basically, to get this. The stadium up and running, getting, you know, a sponsorship, selling sponsorships for the paint and, you know, getting people to fix the plumbing. And, and it was just, you know, there was just so much that needed to be done and they were able to, I mean, look, they, they got it up and running.
0: Mm-hmm. They sure did. You know, a couple other things is a team is being formed here and in reading your book, which again, terrific book, really enjoyed it. I encourage everybody out there, um, to to get a copy of the book well actually ron tell us how people right now can get a copy of the book because it's it's not being released in the way i would hope it would be
1: well it is it had been available on amazon it's still available for order on amazon but it's been back order i think part of it is because of everything going on in the world right now amazon's ordering some things, uh, given the state of affairs, um, you can order it from a Kindle, you know, an ebook. book there. Um, it's available at McFarland Publishing, McFarland.com. McFarlane, yeah, if you Google McFarlane Publishing, um, available directly from there is the best way right now. And then, of course, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble and other book Dealers, um, you know, will have it available online as well. But there's the, you know, like I said, if you're looking just for the ebook, you know, in for your Kindle, I know it's available, you know, right there on Amazon. But if you're looking for a hard copy, um, which I still love having a hard copy of of books, um, you know, I would recommend you going directly to McFarland Publishing and ordering it directly from there.
0: Sure. So again, in reading it, one of the things that I found really interesting was the role that the Baltimore Colts marching band played. Why were they such an important factor?
1: Well, look, the, if anyone's seen the, the, the 30 for 30 uh, uh, on the Baltimore Colts marching band, I would highly recommend it. it was one of the best ones. Uh, Barry Levinson directed it. And look, when the Colts left town, they left the band behind. And uh, it's just a thank goodness when the Colts left town, the band uniforms had been taken to the cleaners. So they weren't there. Uh, So they didn't get, the the Colts didn't leave with the uniforms and the Colts marching band took the uh, torch for Baltimore football for years and years and years and did anything they could to bring football back to Baltimore. They would play in parades. They would play at, NFL stadiums that weren't theirs. They'd play at the Hall of Fame. They'd play anywhere that they could get an audience. They played for the USFL um, team in '85, so you know it only became natural. And then and eventually they evolved into the, to the Ravens Marching Band of today. But you know when when the uh, CFL team came to town, um, you know, look, they reached out. Uh, you know, the the team reached out to them. They reached out to the team and it was kind of, you know, a match made in heaven in that regard.
0: And what about John Stedman? Who is John Stedman and, and why is he so important in this story? John, John Stedman
1: is a was a legendary um, Baltimore sports columnist. Um, he had attended every professional football game in, in Baltimore from the time the team arrived and, and, in the early 50s all the way up to the 2000 season of the ravens right before the super bowl when he passed away um and you know again his opinion mattered he he uh was a a um a great journalist but he was also a supporter of baltimore and he had done everything he could to try to get the attention of the nfl and then when the cfl came to town look he had the ear of of jim spiros and said look you know he said look if you want this team to have his chance to succeed you got to call them the Colts um and you know look it was a calculated gamble on on, on Sparrows part but i think that that decision helps build the legend uh, uh, the, uh of this franchise here in baltimore you know the, the battle that the nfl had with them uh taking the court over the name you know mm-hmm. and just uh, galvanized it only galvanized the the fans here in baltimore so they're like fans are like get, let me get this straight you take away our colts <laughs> you, you, you shut us out in expansion you have other teams kind of tease tease us before using us to go to another city and then we have a, a little cfl team who wants to call themselves the Colts, and you're not going to let us do you know, like there are other teams that are called the colts there are other teams that are called the lions you know the cfl had the bc lions yeah um, you know, there are, there are
0: different, it's Heck, not like in it's the a- CFL and in the CFL, you basically had two teams called the same thing, the rough right. riders and the rough riders. And you're right, right. You have the Arizona Cardinals, you have the St. Louis Cardinals, you have the New York football giants, you have the San Francisco giants. Right. There are teams, uh, in different sports, the Winnipeg jets, the New York jets that have, you know, identical names heck in college football how many teams you know are there with with the same name but right. the NFL squashed the name Colts even though it was the CFL Colts so take us through the naming of the team and how that by using the name Colts even though they ultimately couldn't call themselves the Colts. How did that help build a following, even though there was sentiment that the name would have to change?
1: Well, again, it galvanized the city. You know, that, you know, you, you know in this business, look, getting yourself attention is is part, is just, ha- you know, is, is a huge part of the um, battle. And nothing got this team's attention more, the, fin- the fans' attention more than naming them the Colts. And then when the NFL goes and sues, Right, it only galvanized the fans more. This was lead story on ESPN. This was lead story in the New York Post and the Washington Times, and you know all the major news organizations was covering this battle. And, and you know at the end of the day, it, they you know win an injunction, and because of that, the day before, you know, or shortly before they, they play their first game, you know, they have to uh, get rid of everything that says Colts. You know, hats, shirts programs tickets you know signage so you literally had interns taking the programs and taking the shirts and taking the memorabilia and with a sharpie and and you know blacking out the word Colts I mean I I, I'm thankful that you know I have a copy of the first program that says Colts I have a hat that says Baltimore CFL Colts I mean which led them to really at that point play that that first season as the team with no name they were known In most circles, as you would refer to them as the Baltimore CFLers or the Baltimore CFL football team or, you know, whatever you wanted to call them. I think most of them called them the CFLers because what else are you going to call them?
0: Right. And then, you know, trying to stay in the same category or the same vein, they ultimately call themselves the Stallions and getting to the Stallions was a process too. They weren't the stallions until their second season. So how did they come up with the name, the stallions?
1: There was a contest at the end of the first season. And I think they just realized they weren't going to win the battle with the NFL or wasn't financially viable. Um, and so they went with something similar. Um, and you know, uh, the ironic thing is, is that you know, the logo that they went with, um, if you look at the Denver, Denver Broncos,
0: Broncos, it is so similar.
1: It's very similar. You know, people in Baltimore will point that out. You know, so we we're just saying, you know, just note the similarities. But that's, <laughs> that's how that came about after that first season.
0: Well, you sort of touched on this, too. Um How much did the Baltimore faithful hate? And I use that word, hate, on purpose here. How much... Did the Baltimore faithful hate the NFL at this point?
1: There was the hatred. I mean, I think, it was, you know, there was a the hatred because, again, it was, you know, you, you think of it as, you know, you you get spit on, you get kicked, you get thrown out. You know, the NFL was built. You ask many people, Baltimore, what was the NFL built on? It was built on the 1958 championship game between the you know Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. Uh, the first overtime game in NFL history, you know, that, that, that has been dubbed by many the greatest game of all time. You know, mm-hmm. it, you know another great ESPN. Um, 30 for 30. Special yeah. uh, was, was on that game. I mean, and so, you know, then for, for, for a league to build them themselves on the back of Baltimore and then to ignore them and, and throw them off to the side of Paul Tagley, the commissioner, told, you know, told people in Baltimore, maybe you should take that money and build a museum. And that, you know, again, that just kind of angered the fans even more. So, you know, again, Baltimore's got a, you know, uh, an inferiority complex in many ways. It's us against the world. Um, And this was just another example of that.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, let's get to the uh, product on the field. First, the CFL game is different than that of the NFL game, beginning with the field dimensions, how many players are on the field, the rouge, three downs versus four downs. Spiros knew that in order to succeed, he had to get a CFL experienced executive as opposed to a former NFL executive who would learn on the fly. Talk about Spiros' philosophy and how he convinced Ex CFL people to come to Baltimore, beginning with the Don.
1: Well, the Don, Don Matthews, uh, was again a very experienced CFL coach. Um, and he knew again the two biggest things was he knew that he knew understood football, but he didn't understand, you know, Spurs understood football, but he didn't understand CFL football, and he knew that for this team to be, uh, you know, um, uh, successful, he needed to bring someone in and, and Don Matthews had uh, had tons of experience with as an assistant and as a head coach with a championship co- winning coach. Um, and again, laid the foundation. I think that was part of the reason some of the other teams failed, you know, Pepper Rogers, uh, you know, who, who coached, uh, who coached in the CFL said he loved everything about, uh, the CFL, except for the rules, you know, <laughs> I mean, he had Forrest Gregg, you know, the great, uh, Green Bay former Pack- Packer, yeah you know, just didn't really get it. Ron Meyer, you know, coached in, in Las Vegas. You know, didn't get it. So, you know, for, for them, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't a matter of bringing an NFL cast. Up. They didn't bring in a lot of names. You know I mean? If you ask people, this was before the internet, I Ask people about Baltimore myself included, you know, what do you know about the CFL? Well, I knew that Warren Moon played there for a while. And I knew Rocket <laughs> Ishmael had signed with the Argonauts and I knew Doug Flutie and I also knew pinball Clemens, And that was really about it. So, yeah. You know, they took a chance that they were going to be able to build a successful team with CFL players, and they said if they built a winner, that the fans would come, and that's exactly what
0: happened. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we get into all of that, I got a couple other names, and I'd just like you to tell me a tiny bit about them, um, beginning with Jim Pop.
1: Jim Pop was a young at the time, a young up and coming executive in the CFL. Um, and it was someone that Don, you know, wanted to bring in to be the general manager. Um, and, and really, again, those two, kind youth and experience at the time, uh, really connected. Um, they had some knockdown dragouts like like any other, you know, general manager and, and coach. Um, but they worked together and they understood the CFL and they understood, you know, a, a football team is only as good as the sum of their parts. So they really understood that what they needed to do to bring in quality players to build a winner,
0: beginning with Tracy Ham. Tell me about Tracy Ham.
1: Tracy Ham, you know, was a player that may have had a shot at playing in the NFL in today's game, but back then, you know, a running quarterback uh, from a one-AA school at Georgia Southern, um, you know, wanted a chance. He was drafted late in the NFL, but in you know, a late-round pick. But he knew that he wanted to play quarterback, so he went to the CFL, had a lot of success, um, and really, it was his. Ability, you know, his signing led to a lot of other players wanting to come to Baltimore.
0: Mm-hmm. Mike Pringle.
1: Mike Pringle. Uh, again, probably the greatest player in CFL history. Started off, um, you know, with the, with the uh, World Football League. Uh, and then when the San- Sacramento Surge became the Sacramento Gold Miners, uh, he stayed on with them in the CFL and then went on to um, get traded across uh, the country. Look, he was a West Coast guy. wasn't sure that he wanted to go to Baltimore. wasn't even the starting running back originally in '94. But again, they just started handing him the rock, and he just you know, ran roughshod both years in Baltimore. You know, had a great career uh, with the Alouettes, and we'll talk about the Alouettes uh, who, who were born mm-hmm. out of the demise of the Stallions. And then really, again, went on to be the greatest, arguably the greatest player in CFL history.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris Armstrong.
1: Chris Armstrong, a solid receiver for many years uh, in, in, Balt- in Baltimore and in the CFL. Uh, was a, a kind of play that had a number of chances in, in various leagues uh, before making it in the, in the um, CFL. You know, he had a tryout. He showed off with speed. And you know, again, became one of the, the the favorite targets here in Baltimore, and is now uh, you know, has has stuck around in the community and is coaching high school football here.
0: Oh, cool. Um, Guy and John Earl,
1: Guy and John Earl, offensive lineman, uh, brothers. Again, had a shot at the NFL, um, but you know, we're kind of practice squad, you know, backup type of guys in the NFL. Uh, and found their way to Baltimore and and really lived the dream of being able to play together.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Baltimore, with with the Don leading the way, had several CFL vets who were all-stars as well. But was it the Don? What was the allure of playing in Baltimore? Why did all these guys want to play there instead of Las Vegas or Shreveport or Sacramento, etc.? Um, they
1: wanted to play um, in Baltimore. I think a well, combination: one, play the United States; two, uh, play for a coach like Don Matthews; and three, for a lot of them, it was the first chance that they had for their family to be able to play with them, to mm-hmm. see them play. I mean, um, you know, they got to. You know, it's kind of hard for someone who's who's from West Virginia or Virginia or you know even Atlanta or what have you, uh, w- you know, to have their family come and see them in. You know, Saskatchewan or British Columbia or Toronto even. So to have that opportunity uh, was something that, you know, they end a chance to play in a stadium like Memorial Stadium where Johnny Unitas played uh, was a big lure to a lot of players.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, um, getting now to the games on the field, they obviously, the Baltimore CFLers, They were putting together one heck of a team. And in their first ever game against Toronto, um, well, talk about it. Talk about the pageantry, the honors, the atmosphere. What was it like?
1: Well, I mean, obviously the the first uh, – Well, let me correct myself.
0: Uh, let Let me correct myself. They beat Toronto on the road, I believe.
1: Yep, in Skydam.
0: Yep, in, in and then they came home to play Calgary. So tell us about those first two games because the game against Calgary didn't go all that well. But right. So, I mean, so just you know, tell us a little bit about that first game in Toronto, and then the big game against Calgary in Balt. Uh, you know, against Baltimore.
1: Well, they obviously you know look uh, they start off on the road in Toronto. Um, And they come up with a, with a win there, um, that, that first win. And I think that was a huge, just to kind of get things started, Um, you know, they win 28, 20 in that first game. Um, And then, you know, look, they knew what they were doing. The the league wanted to, you know, get people excited about football here in Baltimore. So they knew scheduling that game against Calgary. This is look, Doug Flutie was playing at the time, you know, um, still a huge name, obviously um, know, the biggest star at that point in time in the CFL, uh, was still known for his Heisman Trophy year in Boston College. Um, and it was also a Manchester, Maryland native, you know, which a lot of people didn't realize. Mm. Um, and he had, what, uh, 39,000 fans show up,
0: mm-hmm. you know, just
1: to put that in, in Put that in perspective. The XFL this year was excited; a fifteen to twenty thousand fans were showing up. <laughs> so this was forty thousand fans um, showing up for a CFL game, and you know they started off, you know, uh, coming out on the field. Ironically, well, not ironically, but but poetically, they were brought onto the field in moving vans because they Baltimore Colts left the field. <laughs> <laughs> you know, left Baltimore in moving vans. And, you know, again, they didn't, fans didn't care if there were this called the CFLers. You know, the the, the announcer would yell, you're a Baltimore CFL, and everyone would yell Colts. You know, there would be COL, you know, all the, the big, the old fans from the Colts corrals were there. The band was there. You had Johnny Unitas and Art Donovan and Lenny Moore and all of those players, you know, on the sidelines. Um, and it had, you know, it had this... Uh, you know had the feeling that there was going to be a storybook ending but unfortunately for the uh uh the Baltimore CFLers in that game in mean, uh, Calgary outscored Baltimore 20 to nothing in the fourth quarter to break open it a, was a, a close game and win the game 42 to 16
0: mhm mhm You know, the timing for Baltimore's entrance into the CFL was actually quite good. I mean, you might say a confluence of factors led to the team's success. Baseball, it was on strike at that time of year, July. So there's no NFL. There's no college football at this point. People are starving for sports. I mean, it was perfect timing. And Baltimore led the league in attendance. So, I think the CFL got what it had hoped for at least in Baltimore when it came to expansion. What a great time to launch a team, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, again, I I think I mentioned before, I don't think it could have worked any other time in sports history and you have a you have a city that's galvanized against the NFL um because you know they lost out on expansion. Don't believe at this point they're ever going to get a team. Um, and you have the um, yeah you have the baseball strike. So again, there's no NBA team here in Baltimore. Uh, college football, Navy is a really really good team now. They were in a down period at that point in time. Maryland football was kind of a, irrelevant in the air in the Baltimore area at that time. Um, and again, there was no other sports in town. I mean, think about you know, we think about it right now how much. We're just clamoring for anything sports related. Mm-hmm. You know, just there's the right now with everything going on in sure. the world. I um, mean, we're watching. We're watching. You know, do- great documentaries on you know, old teams from twenty years ago. <laughs> we're watching virtual sports, uh, virtual Kentucky derbies. We're watching. You know, uh, there's talk of ESPN signing up Korean baseball. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're we're you know, so you know imagine that today you know what we're dealing with today and in a in and in a professional football team that's really good is in your backyard mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's what you know obviously we didn't have the you know, the public health crisis that we're dealing with now and there were other obviously other entertainment options at that point in time but but just no other sports in town and then there's this team and we're like Wow, you know what? We're going to give us a ch- a chance.
0: Yeah, and they were pretty good. The CFLers did pretty well that first year. They went twelve and six, and they made the playoffs and a run for the Grey Cup. Now, before we get to the Grey Cup, tell us about that ninety four season and just how good Baltimore was.
1: Again, I mean, they, they kind of got off to a, an up and down start. Um, they started the season, you know, with four and three and so or so, um, and then they go. Um, eight and three down the stretch to get to 12 and six. Um, and you know really, they kind of hit their stride, you know, late in the season. Um, and <clears throat> pardon me. Um, you had a huge win, uh, against uh, the Winnipeg blue bombers, 57 to 10 late in the year. Um, you know, and then you and 39,000 fans show up at Memorial stadium they lose, they, they have a kind of a stinker the next week lose getting shut out, eighteen to nothing against uh, the gold miners, but you know, they get hot in the playoffs. They have a huge win again against Toronto, um, you know, in Baltimore. They win on um, they win uh, on a late field goal. Um, to, to, to beat the Blue Bombers again uh, to get uh, to, this, to the Grey Cup. And then they played in what many consider one of the greatest and not the greatest Grey Cup of all times. It was a back-and-forth game against uh, an underdog BC Lions team. Um, and, uh, again, this was a, a cultural thing as well because, you know, again, one of the things I learned about this, well, this book was just how upset Canadian, many Canadians were by the chance of a U.S. team winning the Grey Cup.
0: Yeah, um, so and- so the Canadians, Canadian football fans did not want a U.S. team to win. And um, it was sort of a us-against-the-world mentality for for Baltimore. And right. there was a controversial play that may have been the difference, the, the Ray Alexander catch, or was it a catch?
1: Right, I and mean, again, that was a... A, a catch at that point in time, you know, that was the turning point of the game. Um, it kind of turned the field around and Baltimore would get the ball back late. Um, and then it wouldn't get, it wouldn't be able to do anything with the, with the ball. Uh, and then, you know, in, in the, uh, um, well, tell know, us, tell bad- us,
0: tell us about the catch itself, set it up for us. And why was it so controversial?
1: Well, again, I think uh, you, this was a game uh, that uh, I think again it was so back and forth. I don't think anyone anticipated it uh, to to be that way. Um, and again, it was uh, was it the Lions jumped out to a 20 to 12 halftime lead. Less than two minutes remaining, Danny McManus fires a deep ball to uh, Ray Alexander. Alexander and Erb. And Ir- Smith, the Baltimore defensive back, went up for the ball. Uh, It appeared that the ball came out when Alexander hit the ground, but officials ruled the Lions wide receiver had possession, and the ground made him lose the ball. So this play is considered one of the most controversial in Grey Cup history. Um, That controversial reception uh, set up a failed 37-yard field goal attempt by Pesaglia with 102 left in regulation. However, in the CFL game, if you miss a field goal, you know, Baltimore, you know, had a chance. It has to run the ball out of the, um, you know, out of the end zone. Uh, they get the ball to the two-yard line at that point. So, um, you know, Pringle on first down gets nothing. throws an incompletion, and it forces the CFLers to pump the ball. Um, so when that happens, Miller has a Shanks, Josh Miller, the punter. He went on to have a great career in the NFL, winning a Super Bowl as well shanks a punt um, and it really allows uh, Darren Flutie, who was Doug Flutie's, who's Doug Flutie's brother, um, returns the punt to the 34-yard line. The Lions run two more plays before Louis Pisaglia, who played 25 years with BC before retiring in 2000. Hits a 38-yard field goal at, at the buzzer to give the Lions a 26-23 upset victory.
0: Hmm. So Baltimore gets robbed and <laughs> – And, man, it got underneath their skin. So, first, they lose the Grey Cup in 94. They do come back in 95 for a second season. Uh, They come back now. They're no longer the CFLers. They are the Baltimore Stallions. And they are about to embark on one of the greatest seasons in the history of baltimore football regardless of league this was a team with a date with destiny tell us about that magical season the passion to win the mission the determination to achieve the ultimate goal just just how how focused was this team
1: well, this team brought pretty much the whole roster back. They made some key additions, um, you know, getting Carlos Ware to the kicker um, who played last the five, uh, previous season with Las Vegas uh, was a great kicker at the University of Miami was the was the big addition. Um, but they bring pretty much the whole team back. They have Chris Wright, which was a rookie uh, punt returner wide route that was just one of the top special team players in the league that year. Um, and they come back to the, the mantra of that season that they, like you said, it was the mantra of that season was unfinished business. They, they, they came wanting to prove the world that last year wasn't a fluke and they were the best team. Um, and they got off to a really good start. They got off to a, um, a five and one start, but then they go and they, they lose two in a row. Again, they, they played a stretch, um, where they played. They played, like, two, four, four, four games between f- July 29th and August 12th that year. How is that and possible? That. How
0: do you play four games with a 37-man roster in 15 days?
1: Exactly. I mean, they went from uh, Birmingham uh, to Edmonton to Calgary back to Baltimore. Um, you know over that, that stretch and, and they lost uh two of those three games. But again, think of it thirty six man roster, Maryland you know, football teams play today with a you know fifty three man roster, they 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 suit up forty five in the NFL and they would never play that many games in that sort of stretch. Well, well how, did, I,
0: how did how did such a schedule like that come about? Well, Why was the was schedule was just, made that way?
1: Well I think it was this part unfortunately look you had you had two you got all those cities up in Canada and then you've got Birmingham and Baltimore and Memphis and you know it just you know just the way that the the, the league was set up you know, geographically Um and then again you know getting the dates in the stadiums when they want to play the games when you know had to correlate all that stuff it just just the way it kind of worked out and I think all the teams in the league had similar stretches that season um, and then I go back and I read a lot of the transcripts of the games and you know, the game reports from the newspapers and, you know, you had, I mean, some of the things that they, you know, there was no such thing as a, as a concussion protocol back then, you know, the mm-hmm, players mm-hmm. were getting concussed and going back into games and you're getting hurt and going back in. Um, but after that lost to Memphis, they didn't lose again. I mean, they won, you know, Everything. they finished, <laughs> they won, um, and they finished, uh, um, fifteen and three, and then went went undefeated in the playoffs, and and, and really got all the way you know through. Well, well, uh, well to before the we cup. get there,
0: how key was it at this point that their coach was Don Matthews? How was he able to coach a team through this incredible stretch?
1: Well, I think again, that's where having a um that's where having a successful CFL coach rather than an NFL ca- or college cast off came into play. He understood the weather. He understood the, the travel. He understood how to work a roster. He was also not afraid to, to cut players and bring other players in. If it felt like, you know, that it was the best thing to do. I and mean, this was a guy that, you know, over the course of his career um, would eventually win five great cups, advanced to four others, won 11 division titles. I mean, he, you know, he coached, you know, all over the league. Um, so he knew how to get the most out of his players and players wanted to win for him. So, you know, that that's half the battle too, is having a coach like that, that the players wanted to win for.
0: Well, you know, so like you said, they, they're, they start off five and one, all of a sudden they're five and three, and then they embark on this historic run. And, you know, I sit here and ask myself, well, what changed? Well, what changed was the team got a little more rest and they started to play a, a regular type of football schedule. And, I mean, th- this team just cruises into the Grey Cup championship. And, once again, Canadian football fans do not want an American, a U.S. team, to win the Grey Cup. But wouldn't you know it, the Baltimore Stallions beat the Calgary Stampeders for the gray cup 37 to 20 this should have been such an exciting time and in two short years football fans in baltimore ride this roller coaster of not having a team an nfl team to getting a cfl team showing just incredible and a passionate support for the team. They go on to win the, they, they play in the gray cup both years, lose it the first time, win it the second. And the second time it was somewhat bittersweet because the team knew its time in Baltimore was done. Art Modell announced he was moving the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore The CFL cannot compete with the NFL, especially on U.S. soil. This was all happening as the Stallions were making their way through the playoffs. What was that like for the players and team management, namely Jim Spiros, knowing that their time in Baltimore is basically done?
1: Yeah, and I think that you know there was a there was a sense of unknown at least for the players. I think maybe a sense of denial. Um, you know, again, you know, they get into the playoffs. They beat Winnipeg thirty six to twenty on November fourth. It's two days later when 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 Art Modell announces that the team, the Browns are coming to Baltimore, and I think you know I think there was some belief. Well, they play different seasons. You know, can this work? I mean, they, you know, it was it was pretty obvious that it wasn't going to. But I, I think the players just weren't sure what to expect. You know, they didn't, you know, they said, well, look, we've done everything we're supposed to. We have 37,000 fans We're, you know, we, we're, we're, we're supposed to host the Grey Cup here in Baltimore in a couple of years. Um, you know, we, 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 the fans love us. Well, of course we can make this work. And, you know, we, you know, obviously there were a lot of things, finances, it just wasn't going to work. There's only so much advertising dollars. The marketing dollars dried up. The advertising diet dollars dried up. Um,
0: and, know, and it dried up in the middle of the season,
1: you know, right. or in and the
0: playoffs. I mean, all of a sudden, all this money is being pulled away,
1: right? And 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 I kind of made the analogy. It's kind of like the, you know, you, 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 a, you know, a guys dating a girl for a long time, and then she cheats on him, doesn't treat him very well, you know, you know, g- g- goes and runs off. You find a you know a, a nice girl that, that that treats you well, and and, and is wonderful to you and everything that you would hope for Then that, that one that cheated on your calls back and said, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I want to make it up to you. And then they say, you know what? Okay. <laughs> That's kind of, you know, I uh, maybe it's maybe simplifying, but it just, it wasn't going to work. And again, this, the CFL expansion in the U S wasn't going to work um, at that point. You know, you had other teams that were already folding and, you know, even if Baltimore had survived another year, you know, would there even going to be any other U S based teams at that point, there was talk of maybe, Moving the Stallions to Virginia, Uh, you know, maybe having a team in Miami, maybe San Antonio sticking around, but it just, it just wasn't going to work. And so, you know, the the Stallions game uh, with the um, Stampeders would would be the last game played by a U.S. franchise in CFL history.
0: Right, but it still had to be somewhat shocking to the players that once Modell announced that he was moving the Browns to Baltimore, that just like that, the lights were turned out, that they even lost fan support as they're making this run to the championship. The fans are like, the heck with this. We got the NFL back. I could care less about the CFL. That sort of had to be a little surprising.
1: Well, yeah, and look, I mean, I I couldn't, like, uh, they win the Grey Cup. And then they come in and they had a, like a little bit of a celebration you know, um, down the Inner Harbor, which, you know, I didn't even remember, to be honest with you. I don't even remember. That. And then they were gone. Um, you know, Spears sells the team or doesn't sell the team, but he folds the team. And, and then they you know, they they rebrand them, the, the Montreal Alouettes again, uh, which was the only franchise to kind of survive. But in reality, you know, the Stallions history is not included in Montreal's history, although a lot of fans look much like the, the Orioles know, Baltimore Orioles know that, you know, they were the St. Louis Browns before they came to Baltimore, mm-hmm. or the, the Ravens were the, the Cleveland Browns, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They're not really included in the history. But you, you can't deny that the success that Montreal would go on to have for years and years after, you know, arriving there was in part because of the core that followed them up from Baltimore. hmm
0: Did how... How much did the success of the Stallions uh, fan turnout for the Stallions play in the role of Baltimore ultimately getting an NFL team in the form of the Browns, now known as the Ravens?
1: Well, I I think initially fans thought, well, we proved that we could get 40,000 fans to a CFL game. That's why they came here. Uh, in reality, was it a factor? Yes, was it an overriding factor? That's debatable. uh Baltimore had a great fran- uh stadium package you know that they, they placed in for years. They had the funding for a stadium through a lottery um th- through uh lottery revenue um and and they had a great deal to put together. so you know it was there for someone for the taking um did that ex- did the this, did the stallion success expedite that move? an argument could be made yes uh did they did it show the nfl that you know that a team could sh- could be successful there while an nfl team was just a couple miles down the road in uh in washington and a couple miles up the road in philadelphia yes so you know was it a factor yes was it as big a factor as many stallions fans initially believed uh, you know that's debatable
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and going back to the alouettes what was the logic in the CFL pulling a – well, doing to, to, I guess, the Stallions as they did to the – as the NFL did to the Browns, sort of – the Ravens were really the Browns, but they couldn't take any of the records with them, and the Stallions in in some way were like – you know, it was the same thing. The Alouettes were the stallions, but they couldn't take any of the records with them. What was the purpose in that? Why? Why'd they do that?
1: Well, I think it was to, to give it the, again. The the Alouettes had a history in Montreal. Yep, yep. Um, and you know, I think it was the CFL was ready to, to end the chapter of U.S. expansion. I think it was the there the you know. While some people, again, even today, I think. You know, uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder. You know, time kind of changes things. There's been a lot of more interest. I think with it being 25 years since the Stallions won the the Grey Cup, there's been I think a little more positive views on on the on the on that era. Um, but I think those in Canada did, wanted to pretend that those three years never happened.
0: <laughs> and and boy, it must burn them that there is an American team, a United States based team that is a gray cup champion that's got to get them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it does to some, but others I've had a lot of, you know, media and fans reach out to me from Canada that, that look fondly on that team because look, those were players that were rooted very strongly for in Canada mm-hmm. prior to them going to Baltimore and after them going to Baltimore, you know, some of the greatest players in, in CFL history, Mike Pringle, Tracy Ham. Alfred Payton, you know, uh, Jim Don Matthews, greatest coach in CFL history. Jim Pops, the greatest general manager in CFL history. Mm-hmm. Mike Pringle, the greatest player in CFL history. You know, those are all players that are revered in Canada. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and others that had great careers, you know, guys like Irv Smith and Chris Armstrong and, and Gerald Bayless. And you know, so many of those players were, were very successful, um, you know, in, in in the CFL.
0: hmm You know, another cool thing that did come out of this for Baltimore as you know, in your book, Charm City is the only city that can say it has had an NFL champion, a Super Bowl champion, a USFL champion, and a Grey Cup champion. That's pretty yeah. cool.
1: Yeah, you know, we'll take those seven championships and we'll match them up against anybody. They were all... You know, all teams that have a great and and they were one when we were one win away from getting a, an arena football league championship. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, so you know, there's a lot of successful football here in Baltimore.
0: What's the legacy of the Baltimore Stallions? I think
1: overall the legacy is is that they provided a bridge uh, for fans. Uh, for, they provided a bridge between the Colts and the Ravens here in Baltimore. Um, you know, I was not even six when the Colts left town and I was 18 when the Ravens arrived. So my whole childhood went without football, mm. um, NFL football. I mean, I grew up a dolphins fan because we would get the dolphins games, um, because that was the, the regional game that we'd get every week. So it was, yeah, there were other, <laughs> we got, we got the Redskins games and we got the dolphins games, you know, depending what channel it was. So I was a huge Marino fan growing up because of that, mm-hmm. um, and, but I didn't know what it was like. And we didn't know what it was like to tailgate or, you know, how to root for a team or anything like that. I mean, I thought, think of a whole generation of fans gone, right? Um, they showed us how to be football fans. They they brought that passion for football back. And they gave us uh, – I mean, I'm still excited. I could tell you all those players, all those games, you know, as well as, you know, I could – you know, players probably better today than I could tell you who's on the Ravens today.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. In your research in writing the book about the Baltimore Stallions, what surprised you the most? I think
1: it was just the cultural aspect of how angry a lot of people in Canada were about a U.S. team winning the Grey Cup. You know, we were so wound up in the fact that it was us against the world, or us against the NFL, us against, you know, yeah, I, I think that I didn't really realize that I was 15, 16, you know, 17 years old at the time, and I just I just didn't realize just how much angst there was about that, about them even expanding. You know, the CFL has has survived in part where where some of these other alternative football leagues have failed, in part because Cana- it, it's purely Canadian.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: they have they have you know, the the Stallions never had to have a, a certain amount of Canadian players on their roster. You know, the roster you have to have you know, so many players on the roster that are from Canada. You can't do that here in the United States for obvious legal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I always thought to myself, well, why are they so, and I'm thinking to myself, well, why are they so mad? You know, at that point in time, Toronto just won the world series. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. so, so Canadian team was home to the America's pastime championship. Right. Yeah. Um, but, the CFL was is, is a is a purely Canadian league. And and you know, those are fans that are those are passionate about it. You know, we're passionate about it staying in Canada. So I think that was the thing I learned the most about, I think as I was writing this book.
0: hmm I guess it would sort of be the same thing if uh the nfl ever expanded to canada and a canadian team won the super bowl or, or think, london even yeah i think a lot of americans would be pretty upset with that so it's certainly understandable hey ron i really enjoyed our conversation is there anything we left out uh no i think we covered
1: a lot it's been a very fast hour so uh yeah you know i, I looked at my watch wow, we've been on we've been talking for an hour but uh, you know I I appreciate the opportunity. I, I, I'm glad you were able to check out the book. I hope others do too. Uh, this was a book that took me 10 years to, to get to press. It took a long time to get people to understand the story. We, you know, I, I had to find a publisher, even local publishers didn't quite understand this story. Um, but for those who lived this story, who who lived, you know, a story that again, I think it begins with the Colts leaving and it ends with the Ravens arriving here in Baltimore. Um, it was a unique time in Baltimore sports history. Um, this 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 book is about much more than just you know two years of a CFL team. This was about uh, a city's love for football. It was about these players um, who gave it all for the city, and and still many of them still make Baltimore their home. Um, the legacy of this franchise goes far beyond their two years. You know, um, Josh Miller. Uh, went on again, get a great NFL career as a puncher. Won a Super Bowl. O.J. Brigance, uh, you know, who's battling ALS, um, mm-hmm. won- came back here to Baltimore and won a Super Bowl with the Ravens. The only player in NFL history and in, in football history to win a Grey Cup and a Super Bowl with the same city. Mm. Um, you know, uh, again, uh, Paul D. the who uh, was an intern. For um, in in the in the office in the front office for the for the Stallions, Um, again, you know all those players that went on to play in the NFL, the play that went had higher Hall of Fame careers in the CFL, all because of the opportunity they had here in Baltimore. So again, even 25 years later, you know the impact of that franchise. um, And again, we have fans here today on social media that still get together. There are fans in Baltimore that still make the trek up to the Grey Cup each year. um, You know who 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 love the love the cfl um and again it will those those uh two years will definitely always have a a a special place in my heart um when it comes to, to sports here in baltimore
0: well your passion is evident i really enjoyed our conversation and i wish you all the luck in the world with this book
1: thank you so much i really appreciate it
0: In 1996, the CFL returned to its roots. It had shrunk to just nine teams, including the Montreal Alouettes. While the Stallions did not officially become the Alouettes, there were definitely some similarities. Tracy Ham was the team's quarterback, Mike Pringle was Montreal's top rusher, and Irv Smith and Alfred Payton were cornerstones of the defense. Montreal went 12-6, and beat Hamilton in the semifinals before losing to eventual Grey Cup champion Toronto in the East Finals. Today, the CFL is teetering on complete ruin. Let's hope it doesn't happen. Unlike the NFL, the CFL relies heavily on its gate for financial support. And if the season never kicks off, there are reports the CFL might never come back. Let's hope that's not the case. I'd like to thank my guest today, Ron Snyder, and the good folks at McFarland for sending me a copy of this terrific book, The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Championship Franchise. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Please let your fellow football fans, friends, and family know about the podcast, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.